0: Hello, I'm Jacob Kruger, and this is the Write Your Screenplay Podcast. In part one of this podcast, we did a really deep look at uh, the link between therapy and screenwriting. We talked about therapeutic and anti therapeutic scripts, and we talked about some of the challenges of writing therapy scenes and scenes that have therapists as characters. But this week, we're going to get really crunchy in our craft analysis of Shrink it. We're going to look at a pivotal scene from season one of the series. And in looking at it, we're going to explore a bunch of different things. We're going to explore what to do when cliches come up in your writing and how to transform them into something that feels new and fresh again. We are going to discuss the difference between plagiarism and homage and how to know which one you're doing when you are using a scene that is derived from something we've seen before. And we're also going to be learning five incredibly helpful craft techniques from shrinking that will help you write better dialogue in your own screenplay. (laughs) Therapy scenes are uniquely difficult. And the reason that they're uniquely difficult is that the wants tend to drop out. If you are writing teaching scenes, teaching scenes are equally challenging for the same reason. The teacher wants to teach. The student wants to learn, right? That makes these scenes extraordinarily challenging. And so when you're writing these kinds of scenes, there are a couple of things you can think about. Number one, Really seek and destroy questions. This is a good rule of thumb for almost any writing. Now, it's not to say that questions can't work in screenwriting. Questions can certainly work in screenwriting. But questions are hard. Um, If you've ever studied improv, you probably know that asking questions is the most challenging thing you can do to your improv partner. And the reason for that is... When you ask a question, unless you're really using the question, every once in a while, a, a question's not really a question. Sometimes a question's a statement, an accusation, a game, right? But if you're really asking a question because you want to know the answer, what you're doing is you are not sharing anything of yourself. You're not putting anything of yourself out there for your partner, right? And now your partner is basically stuck in this situation where they have a choice, they can either answer the question, in which case all the drama falls out, you wanted to know, they told you, you're done. Or they can refuse to answer the question, in which case you have drama, but you're just having a fight. Or they can come up with the most brilliant, funny, hilarious, complicated response to the question ever. But regardless, there's only one character doing any work when that happens. And the same thing is true, by the way, In writing, right? The same thing that's true in improv is true in writing. When we are writing, what we're really doing is improv on the page, right? Um, And a lot of times we think, you know, we're supposed to be the puppet master puppeting our characters. But when you do that, you're basically taking most of the work onto yourself. Whereas if you allow your characters to work, if you allow your characters to do the main work, then the characters will carry you in so many wonderful ways and you don't have to work so darn hard. But when a character's asking questions, it often means that they're not doing any work. The other character's doing all the work. So if I ask a character, how you doing? The character can either go, yeah, I'm doing good. Yeah, I'm doing bad. They can answer the question. They can refuse to answer the question. You know, How dare you ask me how I'm doing? Or... They can come up with the most fantastic answer to how you're doing, but regardless, they're doing all the work. Whereas if I say it's a sad day, right? You see that that's the same as how you're doing, but now I'm sharing something of myself, right? I'm doing some of the work, right? Or if I say the wind today is just the perfect, the perfect briskness. Well then the other character can say, I don't like wind, right? Or the character, the other character can go, I'm actually cold. Or the character can go, Yeah, it feels it feels like I'm being carried by a mountain breeze, right? Whatever that thing is, right? Now you're you're both characters are doing work, right? Both characters are sharing something vulnerable. So one of the things that you want to think about is if you see questions, you don't have to destroy them, but you have to question them. And particularly if you're writing therapy or teaching scenes, you want to think about that, right? Can you turn your questions into statements that share something about the character, right? Can you turn them into gifts so that both characters are working equally in the scene? So um, writing therapy scenes, writing teaching scenes, is especially important. Writing any scene is a good thing to think about. The second thing, look out for repeated lines. Yes, this is a thing that works great in therapy, but in general, when a character repeats back what the other characters said, the other character's doing all the work. So if they're going, you know, if they go, you know, uh, you're really judgmental. Judgmental, right? Do you see the other characters doing all the work? They've just thrown the ball back without adding anything, right? Um, Whereas if the character says you're being really judgmental and the character says that's because I sit in judgment of you, right? They're adding something. They're sharing something of themselves, right? Um, So you want to make sure that both characters are, to the degree they can be and be real, are contributing, right? That they're not just constantly lobbing the ball back to the other character without adding something themselves. So you want to look for questions, you want to look for repeating. You want to look for enabling dialogue. Tell me more. Really? Oh, my gosh. Right? You want to, um, why, when, how? Right? You want to look out for those things because when that's happening, the drama is falling out. But also, we are only learning one character. Um, and one of the techniques I sometimes use for this, if I'm not sure if both characters are doing equal work, what I'll do is I'll pull their dialogue out. And I'll only read one character's lines. And often what you'll see is that one character is spending the whole scene going, hmm, really? Tell me. Do you think? And the other character is sharing all these beautiful gifts, right? And what you realize when you see that is, number one, I want to play the character doing the beautiful gifts. It's going to be really hard to cast the other character. But you also can really see how one character is contributing so much Right. And the other character feels like a shell of a human being, right? We just don't know them. And we're losing all the efficiency and all the pressure that comes when two characters are being themselves with each other and both contributing to the scene. So you want to look out for questions, repeated lines. Uh, You want to look out for enabling dialogue. You want to look out for teaching, right? For teaching moments. Um, you know, if you're going to do a teaching moment, it's kind of got to be Mr. Miyagi, meaning it's got to be something weird, right? It's got to be something new. And this is really true for any kind of writing, which is if you are writing a kind of scene we've seen before, a therapy scene, a doctor scene, a bank robbery, um, a buying sneakers, ordering food, right? Right. If you're, if you're writing the kind of scene we've seen before, it can't happen the way we've seen it. And so you want to kind of seek and destroy writing that you could write the word normal next to, right? As normally happens. She says what normally happens, right? If the character is doing a lot of normal, a lot of things that are not so them, right? If they're acting the way that most, asking the questions most therapists would act, using the therapeutic techniques most therapists would take, doing the teaching that most teachers would do, right? If they're doing normal, ordering food the way most people order food, ordering Starbucks the way most people order Starbucks, buying shoes the way most people buy shoes, saying hi the way most people say say hi, every single time you allow normal to drop into your script, you're losing an opportunity for efficiency. You are losing an opportunity for re- revelation of character. And, and that doesn't mean that every character has to be weird, right? It just means that every character has to be specific. So if your character says, hey, how you doing? That's how, what everybody says when we say hi. Um, so we know nothing about the character. Um so you would ask yourself well first off can I turn this into a statement instead of a question but if it has to be a question how does my character ask the question differently than any other character how do they do it in a way that shows them how do you find the specificity and once I start to use the word normal and specificity, right? Once I start to talk about normal scenes and having to make a choice that's not the way it always happens, right? Pushing your characters to make different kinds of choices than we've seen before or more specific versions of those choices. You start to realize that what we're really talking about here is a concept called cliche, right? And cliche is probably the the most terrifying word for a screenwriter or for really any kind of creative professional, right? We are all terrified of being cliché, right? And and sometimes to an extent that it actually damages our writing, right? Um, We're so afraid to put the cliché thing down because as soon as we write the cliché, we end up judging ourselves as writers, right? We end up going like, you suck, you cliche writer, you talentless hack, right? We have a a whole vocabulary that we've been building since like eighth grade when some teacher said, this is cliche and cliche is bad, right? Um, What I'd like to suggest to you is that cliche is not bad. Cliche is not dangerous. Cliche doesn't mean you're not a good writer, Everybody writes cliches all the time. We all have stereotypes in our head, right? We all have things we're used to hearing and seeing and we all fall into cliche from time to time. So if you find yourself falling into cliche, instead of judging yourself, instead of being angry at yourself, instead of picking on yourself, what I want you to do is... I want you to look at your cliché, not even as a red flag, but as a yellow flag for a rewrite. The cliché is a place that is inviting you to look, listen, and feel more specifically. Um, So the first step in taking cliché writing and making it not cliché, right, is you have to let go of the judgment of your cliché, right? If you judge your cliché, if you judge yourself for writing a cliché, what's going to end up happening is you're going to start to react to that. I don't want to be cliché. And instead of writing truthfully, you're just going to start writing weird. And now instead of writing cliche you're writing disconnected specificity and that doesn't do much any okay well i've never seen anything like this before but i have no freaking idea who this character is it doesn't make any sense they're just weird right that's not what you're looking for what you're looking for instead is oh isn't that interesting there's a cliche there or or using even less uh an even less uh, charged word. That's why I like the word normal. Oh, I wrote something normal. But the truth is, there are no normal people in the world. I've yet to meet a normal person, right? Everybody is stupid weird, right? (laughs) Everybody in the world is so freaking weird, right? You're weird. And if you follow your most boring friend around for a little while, you will realize that they are weird too. We are specific creatures right and so the key to exploding cliche is don't label it cliche label it normal I wrote something normal well normal happens so there's nothing wrong with that so when you recognize normal in your script what you want to do is you just want to look more closely you want to go well how does my character do this normal thing in a slightly different way than any other character does it You might want to zoom in. What do I see? And keep looking till you see something that surprises you. You might want to listen. What do I hear? And maybe you hear normal on a dialogue. Well, let them keep talking until you hear something a little bit weird, a little bit specific, something that feels like, oh, that is so them. That is so Gabby. That is so Jimmy. That is so Paul. I want to set you on this journey, right? Because if you try to write specificity all the time on the way out, what actually happens is your inner sensor gets involved, right? And your inner sensor starts going, that's no good, that's no good, that's no good, that's no good. And pretty soon you can't even get the ideas onto the page because you're so terrified that maybe you're writing cliché. But rather, if you let yourself just kind of sit in it and go like, well, everybody writes cliche and I write cliche in my first drafts too. And then out of the cliche, I'm going to look for the what's already specific and I'm going to keep that. And then at any moment that I could write the word normal next to, any moment that I've seen this kind of thing this way in a movie before, I just need to look, listen, and feel more specifically until I see, feel, or hear something that surprises me. And when you start to do that, your writing is going to take on a new value. And suddenly all that specificity starts to do work for you. It starts to give you clues of who this character is and how this character is slightly different from every other character in the world. And then every time you meet them, you just want to ask, well, are they doing something similar to that wonderful specific thing? Or are they doing something different from that wonderful, specific thing? And when you just turbocharge your screenwriting with specificity and then reactions, yes, ands in improv terms, to that specificity, what happens is suddenly, instead of trying to write great characters, you're just writing characters, right? Instead of trying to hold yourself to a standard where every word you write is gold, suddenly you're just writing people who feel real because you started with something specific, And then you built on that and you built on that and you built on that and you allowed that foundation to carry you through the script. Connected to this idea of cliché is another idea called plagiarism, right? Um, Called done before, called just ripping it off, right? Um, That a lot of writers fear A lot of writers fear being plagiarized, but even worse, a lot of writers fear, oh, my God, I just wrote Yoda, right? Oh, my God, I just wrote a scene that's just like something in one of the most famous scenes ever, right? Oh, my God, I just, I did the unthinkable. And yet, at the same time, we know that writers have influences, right? And when Scorsese does it, we call it an homage, not plagiarism. So what's the difference? What, What makes something an homage versus a plagiarism, right? Uh, plagiarism, right? When we uh, when we copy something that already exists in a movie, you can actually see this is just another version of cliche. In other words, it was specific when they did it, but it ain't specific anymore because it's already been done that way, right? And that's why it feels like plagiarism. But homage feels different, right? Homage feels like they're honoring something. So I'm going to give you a little metaphor a little way of thinking about cliche. And then we're going to look at a scene from Shrinking, from episode nine of season one, that I think is going to really beautifully illustrate this concept for you. So here's how you know if you are homaging or if you are plagiarizing. Um, Here's how you know the difference in your own writing. This is how I like to think about it. Great writers do not borrow, but great writers do steal. I'm going to say that again. Great writers do not borrow, but great writers do steal. What do I mean by that? When I borrow something, if I borrow my neighbor's lawnmower, I am taking something that does not belong to me. I am using it for the exact same purposes in the exact same way that that other person used it, right? It's not my lawnmower, but I'm acting as if it's mine. That's borrowing. And if you're borrowing, you should be concerned, right? If you're taking somebody else's scene and using it in exactly the same way, right? Not only are you plagiarizing, right? Not only are you borrowing somebody else's thing, right? But you're also writing cliche, right? You're literally just regurgitating something that's already been done. You're not actually looking, listening, feeling, finding the specificity. But great writers do steal. And here's the difference. If I steal your uh, lawnmower and I turn it into a sculpture, right? It's no longer a lawnmower. It is, I've taken it and I've transformed it for my own uses, right? I've adapted it, right? It is no longer, it cannot be returned to you and still do the same thing, right? It is something new. I have made something new out of it. That is homage, right? that is beautiful. That is part of the artistic process. That is having influences, right? And you might be doing an homage to a true story that happened to you, to a movie that influenced you, to a scene in a show, right? A lot of times you're homaging things that you don't even know that it's an homage, right? You don't even remember having witnessed it in the first place. You've you've brought it into you. So, When you are inspired by another scene, don't just borrow it. Don't use it the same way, right? Don't write a cover song that sounds exactly like the way the previous artist sang it. Write a cover song that sounds like the way only you would sing it. In other words, find a more specific way of doing it. Which brings us to episode nine of shrinking. The scene we're about to talk about starts at Six minutes and forty seconds into episode nine, right after the credit sequence, to kind of catch you up on where we are, and there are gonna be some spoilers now. Jason Siegel has um spent the whole show, first last eight episodes, trying to reestablish his relationship with his daughter. And that has forced him to recognize that, number one, he's going to have to deal with some of the things in his relationship with his idealized dead wife that were actually messed up, that were complicated. Some of the questions and the fears he has about that relationship, right? He is going to have to start to perform as a father and earn his daughter's trust back even though things are really hard, right? He is going to have to go on a therapeutic journey. And he has reached the point where he has to deal with his wife. And he has realized it is his wife's birthday. And he has realized that he has to let her go. And he has been under pressure throughout the show to clean out her closet. And he finally cleans out her closet. But it's a really short scene. And the reason that's a really short scene is... It's there's nothing new there, right? We've seen closets cleaned out before, and this brings us into a scene that we have also seen before. So, this is Jason Siegel cleaning out her closet. It's two shots stuff into a box, box carried out, which is another trick I didn't talk about. If you're gonna do stuff that's normal, do it freaking fast. If you're going to do stuff that's not specific, do it really freaking fast, right? If you can't find a specific way of doing it, you got to speed it up because we already get it because it's normal. Okay. In the process of doing this, so this is that literally two shots of normal, he sits down and he looks at a picture book. The picture book says, What a ride, choo-choo. And on the cover, of course, is a picture of him and his now deceased wife. And you might recognize where we are going here. You have seen this scene before in Up. To remind you of how it works in Up, um, if you haven't seen Up, Run, Don't Walk, um, Carl, And Ellie meet as children and she shows him this adventure book about Paradise Falls, this place she dreams of going as a child. And they live a life together and they never get to Paradise Falls. And she dies. And that adventure book never gets filled up And through a sequence of things that can only happen in a beautiful Pixar film, he ends up flying their house and all their objects that they accumulated over a lifetime together to the very spot in Paradise Falls that they always dreamed of visiting. They always dreamed their house would be there. This is the adventure he was supposed to have with his wife. But he lands on the wrong end of the falls and now he's got to drag his house and he's stuck with this kid and it's a mess and he's miserable about it because he's not having the adventure he's supposed to have. And at the end of Act 5, in a seven-act structure, at the end of Act 5 of Up, Russell has lost his faith in Carl. He feels betrayed. The child that he's been dragging along with him um with whom he's developed this kind of father-son relationship that he's always wanted um he has lost russell's faith and russell's flown off on a leaf blower to go confront the bad guy on his own and save his bird and he goes into his house with all these possessions he's been trying to hold on to and he discovers the picture book And we've seen the picture book several times at this point and here are all these pictures from their childhood, right? The adventure that they were supposed to have that they never had together, that they were robbed of, that have made him so bitter. But then he flips the page and we discover that Ellie has filled the book with other pictures that he was not aware of, Right? And they're not the big adventures that they dreamed of as childs. They are the simple adventure that they had as adults, right? Those simple, real-life moments that made their lives matter. And when we get to the end of those blank pages, she is inscribed, thanks for the adventure. Now go have a new one. And that's when you cry. And that's when Carl finally is able to let her go. And go off chasing his real adventure, right? Which is to become a father to Russell, right? So that is that is the way that this very scene that you're about to watch, this very scene, that's exactly how it works in Up. Um, in, And you can see that we're already going there and watch how it continues. He flips through the book. And there are all the exact kind of pictures that we would see in Up, right? The little adventures that they had together. There's a picture of their wedding. And this is important because he's about to officiate his best friend's wedding and he's having a really hard time with it, right? So these are exactly the adventure. This is exactly so far we are in exactly the scene that we've already seen in Up. Now there's a little moment of specificity. He fingers his ring, right? And that's just a little, that's the first time we've seen, this is a little bit of a closer observation, right? This is not exactly the way we've seen it in Up. This is a specific moment that's him This is him wrestling with the fact that he is still wearing that ring and wondering if it's time to take it off. And So we've got a little bit of specificity. And he flips the page. And there's Alice as a little baby, right? His daughter from whom he is feeling estranged, from for whom he's trying so hard to reestablish a relationship, right? And so you can see we're still in upland, but this is just a little more specific, right? This is a little more true to his life, right? We've gone through the standard up adventure shit. And now, hey, there's Alice and a memory of what that once felt like. Then we get to the pictures of Alice and Tia, his wife together. And then he flips the page to the blank page. And do you see this is just this is just a tweak to the upscene. But in this case, the blank pages have not been filled in, right? There's not an adventure he didn't remember, right? It's just the blank pages. And we get this really beautiful, specific line. That that's all we get. But it was so fun. What I'm trying to show you here, now, I, I feel a little weepy just re-watching this scene, right? And you're probably feeling, if you've been watching the show, a little weepy too, right? This scene, even though it is taken directly out of up, does not feel cliche, does not feel plagiarized, does not feel borrowed, it feels stolen, Right? in the good way, right? What this writer has done is he's taken a scene from Up and he has twisted it to his own uses, right? Yes, they're both scenes of a character looking at a picture book. They're both scenes about a picture book with blank pages. But in this version, the blank pages have not been filled in. So instead of having the realization, thanks for the adventure, go have a new one. Instead of the the realization that it's not about getting to Paradise Falls, it's about the little things in life. In this piece, that stuff is already the adventure that he's missing, right? The little stuff is already the stuff he's missing. And the blank pages have not been filled in. There is no future. And so the realization for this character is, so that's all we get right? It's a different revelation. And then the next phase of that was, but it was so fun, right? That this thing that he has been grieving and messing up over and suffering over and struggling over for the last nine episodes, right? Or for the last eight episodes, it was actually so much fun, Right, And this is one of the biggest turns in this piece. In fact, from this point forward, we're going to start to, if you have seen the pilot, right we're literally moving towards celebration. This is a therapeutic piece. But the concept that I want to leave you with today is most writers would never have allowed themselves this scene that just made you cry. They would never have allowed themselves the scene because they go, oh shit, I just wrote up. Right? This is one of the most famous scenes in film history Right, that I've just plagiarized. Oh, terrible writer, bad job, cliche, right? But look what they do. They don't fear the cliche. They lean into the cliche. And they just find a couple of moments of specificity, a couple of moments to do their own slightly different, slightly more specific oh, so, Jimmy, thing to it. And by doing that, they breathe new life in it. And in fact, if you've seen Up, this scene is actually in dialogue with that scene. And that's what homage means, right? If you actually have that scene from Up in your mind, you think you know where this is going. And you're so beautifully and pleasantly surprised to realize it's actually going somewhere else. Some are equally true and equally profound. So this is what I want to leave you with. Don't fear your cliche. Don't try to explode your cliche. Don't judge your cliche. If you've taken something or written something, if you've discovered something normal, if you wrote this thing that felt true and you realize, oh my God, that's already been done in a script. Your job is not to judge. It's not to reject. It's not to throw out. It's not to censor. It's not to blame. Your job is to look more closely, listen more closely, feel more closely, to keep looking until you're surprised, to ask yourself, well, if that's true, what else might be true? To find your own specific take. And that's not a total reinvention. The scene that you just watched um, or just listened to, if you're listening, the scene from episode nine of Shrinking is not a new scene. It's an old scene looked at a little bit more specifically with a couple of little tweaks. And this is the beautiful, gorgeous thing about being a screenwriter. Often the difference between a boring cliche script and a beautiful, moving, specific, and new feeling script are just a few little tweaks, right? A few little moments where instead of judging themselves, the writer said, well, how would Jimmy do it? What do I see? What do I feel? No, that's normal. That's been done. How do I see it? Just a little bit different. I hope that you enjoyed this podcast. If you are getting a lot out of it, come study with me. We have masterclasses for people who want to take their writing to the professional level. We have foundation classes for those of you who are building your skills as writers. We have a pro track mentorship program that will pair you one-on-one with a professional writer who will read every single scene you write, every draft you write, every, um, every revision that you revise and mentor you through your entire career for the tiniest fraction of what you would pay for grad school. You can do it all live online from the comfort of your own home. So come check it out, writeyourscreenplay.com.